For our 150th episode, we thought we'd bring you something a little different. Rick Armstrong, the eldest son of Neil Armstrong, has just released his third album of space ambient electronic music called Chromosphere. So today we're talking to Rick to learn all about his inspirations and his creative process. There's plenty of space-inspired music. What are your favorites? Let us know via our social media pages at Space and Things One on Twitter and at Space and Things Podcast on Instagram and Facebook or via the contact form on our website. And please consider joining us over at patreon.com forward slash space and things. But right now, enjoy episode 150 of the Space and Things podcast. I'm Emily Carney. And I'm Dave Giles. And welcome to episode 150 of our podcast. 150. Hey, one correction, Emily. One correction to that intro. We are now on threads. Yes, we are now on threads. We have another social media page <laughs> to add to the list. Yeah, we're now on threads, which I'm very excited. Uh, so far, thread seems very non-toxic. <laughs> so so far. hopefully it'll it'll remain like that. Thus far, yeah, just wait till the election next year and it, it's going to get bad again. But so far, it seems pretty clean. So we're hoping it stays that way. Yeah. So for anyone who wants to follow us on threads, just find us at Space and Things Podcast. There you go. That's that done. Can you believe we're at show 150? No, I cannot believe it. Uh, it's really awesome, you know. And uh, I think Steve said, uh, my husband uh, said, <laughs> I can't believe you stuck with her that long. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, um, it, it's really awesome. I'm really proud. This is a big achievement. So I'm very proud of, of both of us. Uh, I'm trying to allow myself to feel proud of myself here. I, I usually, I try not to do that. I always try to focus on the next things. But really, no, that's a big achievement. And we've done this for almost three years every week. I mean, that's, that's a big deal. And I, I think we've done a tremendous job. It's the not missing a week thing, which I think makes it most impressive, other than the stories we've told through doing this. But in terms of the logistical Absolutely. achievements of of not missing a week when we've been on holiday and uh, when we've been busy and had work commitments and so on and so forth, or, or when, whatever it may be, the fact we've always had something pre-planned and ready to go. We're good at logistics. Yes. Whether you like the podcast yeah. or not. They must be good at logistics. I think that should almost be a tagline. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, seriously, that's a that's no small feat because, I mean, we've gone through, um, if you guys have been following us since the start, we've gone through a lot through the last three years. So, yeah, the, the fact that we've been able to do it week after week, despite having regular <laughs> regular lives and commitments is, is pretty amazing. So, and I'm hoping, I'm hoping we can do... Uh, 150 more. Ooh, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Yeah, absolutely. And before we crack on, a big shout out to our Patreon subscriber, Kevin Jennings, who has provided us with this week's stings. Uh, a lot of fun to be had there, Kevin. Thank you very, very much. Right. So on to this week's main feature. For our 150th episode, we figured it would be a good idea to combine space and my career, music. Now, we've combined these before, and I'm sure we will again. You may remember when we spoke about the Moon Symphony, composed by Amanda Lee Falkenberg, back on episode 110. Well, this is a different kind of space-inspired music. 
As we said in the intro, today we're talking to Rick Armstrong, the eldest son of Neil Armstrong. He's just released an album called Chromosphere, which is his third album of space ambient electronic music. So we wanted to have a chat with him. One of the tracks on the album is called Artemis One, which was inspired by witnessing the launch of Artemis One in November of last year, which was a major milestone towards returning astronauts to the lunar surface. The track has been paired up with footage of that mission by Simon Lowry, and that video will be in our show notes this week, so check that out to get a taste of what Rick has been making. He's also a member of Edison's Children, an epic rock trio formed by the basis of Marillion, Peter Truavas. He's also performed with Roger McGuinn of The Birds, as well as a host of other musical projects, primarily a bass player, but he can also play guitar and on this new album, all the keyboards and the synths. Prague Magazine said of his debut album, Infinite Corridors, that it possessed an epic soundtrack feel that conjures memories of the rippling musical backdrop to Blade Runner. Music seems to have been a big part of the Armstrong family, with Rick's brother Mark also being a performer, and Mark's daughter Kaylee performing a song called Flight of Fancy in the documentary film Armstrong, which is actually what led me to discover that Rick was also a musician. So today, it really is an absolute pleasure to talk with him. What happens when a musician and a writer get together to make a podcast? Space and things. Welcome, Rick. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's actually our 150th episode, so uh, a big milestone for us. And we've actually had plenty of interest from our Patreon subscribers about this one, and they've sent in a lot of questions in advance. We'll try and squeeze some of them in where we can. But before we talk about the new album, let's go back to the start. Was music a big part of your childhood? And what music was being played in the house when you were growing up? Uh, First of all, thanks for having me. So childhood, when I think about when I was not high school, but younger, you know, I just listened to the radio a lot and eventually started getting some records. I took piano lessons for three years, didn't like it, wanted <laughs> to quit. My mom and dad said, don't quit. You'll regret it when you're older. I said, no, I won't. <laughs> and then I did. <laughs> After another four or five years, like, man, why did I stop? Um, anyway. It wasn't really until high school that I got into music seriously. I think that was mainly because we had moved to a farm and there weren't other kids around to play with like I was so used to. So I had to find something to to occupy my time. And uh, I sort of really got into, uh, I was fascinated by synthesizer. Elton John was the first person I remember that used synthesizer on some of their stuff. And I was always trying to pick that up. Eventually, I ended up getting uh, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer's Brain Sound Surgery album, and that was the gateway to progressive rock. And yeah, just went from there. So most people have a moment when they're growing up when they find a, a music style which is perhaps at odds with their parents' musical taste. Uh, did this happen to you? And, and what were you drawn to? Well, I had a good friend in high school that uh, played bass guitar, and I'd uh, go to his house and he'd play along to songs and. Eventually, he got a new bass, and so he sold me his old one. So I got this bass, a little amplifier, and I don't remember why this was. It may be his influence, but the music that I actually started listening to playing, learning to play bass from was Black Sabbath. Oh, nice. And, <laughs> and my parents never said a word, but I know down there they were thinking, what has happened to our son? <laughs> <laughs> um, but to their credit, they didn't give me a hard time about it. So, but 
Yeah, that was probably it. So uh, Alyssa Young, one of our Patreon subscribers, she has asked whether you ever played music with your father. No, not that I can remember. It was funny. He he could play piano. I I don't know how because <laughs> I never saw him practice. But he could sit down and play and with enough ability that you know wasn't just like picking stuff with two fingers. So I don't know where that came from. But I don't remember. You know he. He came to listen to some things, but I don't remember ever playing anything with him. That's incredible because uh, I took piano a little bit, and I don't, re- I couldn't play a thing nowadays. I don't know how he did it. I would be struggling with chopsticks at this point. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk about your solo records. Uh, there have been three now: Infinite Corridors, which came out in April 2021, Spatial Elements, and the most yep. recent, which is Chromosphere, which came out last month. So. What made you decide to start making electronic ambient music? Well, going back to high school, when I really got into progressive rock, one of the bands that I really liked was a German band called Tangerine Dream. Ah, cool. And when I went to college, they had a music school there, and they actually offered an electronic music class for non-music majors. You didn't have to be a music major to take the class. And they had an electronic music lab with a an ARP twenty six hundred synthesizer and a couple of ARP Odysseys and a four track tape deck and they had a Mellotron for a while nice. and some, some other things. Anyway, they had this lab, and so I took this class uh, the entire time that I went to school. I got a third of a credit each time, which <laughs> meant that. Every year, if I had a real hard schedule, I could drop one class and just slide that credit in and I was still on track to graduate. So that was helpful. You know, it was mostly you kind of went in whenever you wanted because there were only a couple people that did this. And and then every now and then I'd have to meet with the professor and and play him what I was be working on. And, and he he was a pretty gruff guy and he'd be like, that's crap, that's crap. That's not bad right there. You And so he'd be uh, instructive about how to do this kind of music, which his main point was, I think, to try to keep it interesting, keep the listener off guard a little bit, don't get too predictable. Uh, and that, that always stuck with me anyway. So I did that long story short, was interested in kind of getting, uh, you know, some kind of job that allowed me to create that kind of stuff, but never found anything. It requires a lot of gear to do that, especially back then. And I just didn't have the money for that. So it kind of fell by the wayside. Fast forward to, to the pandemic, there's a musical software package called Logic that I really wanted to, to get uh, a better understanding of. And so I had all this free time with COVID and started working my way through this and ended up thinking, hey, wait a minute, with, I could do what I used to do kind of this way now. And so I just did one song, put it together, and it's like, hey, that was fun. Kind of worked, and then I did another one, and did another one. Pretty soon, I, I didn't intend to do an album, but I was like, I've got almost enough material for an album, <laughs> uh, and so I put that out. Then started just working out again, see what comes, and now I have three albums. So, wasn't really the plan, but I've I just, I just enjoyed it so much, and it's a little different than that. It's not, I wouldn't call it ambient really because there's some, typically more going on than what you have in in ambient stuff and it's the sort of thing that you know you can listen to without paying attention or if you pay attention you might find stuff in there oh i never heard that before kind of thing 
So I just do it for myself and, you know, and, and there are some people that like it. And so that's great. It's not going to allow me to retire, uh, in my leisure, but that's not the goal of it. It was just really fun to do. And I haven't started working on the next one yet, but you know, you never know. I love the fact that on this new album, you've got tracks inspired by the images of JWST and the Artemis One mission as well. Right. Have you always maintained an interest in space or is that something you've embraced more recently? No, I've always had that interest. I've always tried to keep up with, with what was going on. It's, it's just an outlet for me now to sort of create music to go along with stuff. If I could have done that for other things, I'm sure I would have in the yeah. past, but it's just an inspiration, really. So Leo Hilzendegger from Patreon asked, how do you translate the emptiness of space into music? <laughs> well, I, I don't know. <laughs> Sometimes compositions are inspired by particular things like in the case of of artemis and the and the vast unknown uh and sometimes i i really just start i i don't know if i'd even call it composition i'd call it construction you just start finding sounds and trying to put them together and sometimes that evokes a mood and then you kind of run with it and a good example of that would be on spatial elements there's a track called heart of iceland and I did a video for it and I went to Iceland in 2015 and took a bunch of pictures, but it didn't really start out as being inspired by that. It started out as, oh, this is just one of the first sound that I had. It was like, boo, this is like Viking thing. This is Norse mythology. This is something there. And I sort of built it up around that. Then I realized, hey, wait a minute. I want to do a video for this. I've got all these Iceland photos that I could use. So now the track is... It's about Iceland, even though it wasn't really necessarily <laughs> inspired by that. So things come together in all different ways. Most of the time, I don't know what, I don't have anything in mind. I just start making sounds and I see where it goes and then try to find something to fit. Finding names for songs, that's not easy. <laughs> you can struggle with that. Yeah, particularly when you don't have lyrics, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Can't, can't fall back on lyrics. Although I did, I did, uh, there is a track with lyrics on the, on Chromosphere. It's not my lyrics, but it was a, uh, a guy named Gabriel Agudo who I played with in Chile in 2019 for some gigs with Stephen Rowley from Rillium. Anyway, I sent him the track and say, do you, do you have any lyrics that might work for this? And he said, I think I do. And it just sort of developed from there. And so the lyrics and the vocals are totally his. And then, you know, the music is obviously mine. I don't know that I answered uh, the question. I don't know. <laughs> if it does, that's, that's what I'm going for, but I can't tell you how I do it because I don't know. <laughs> Not because I'm being secretive. So Don Irwin asks... What sort of analog or digital instruments do you use to create your music? Uh, good question. So it's mostly virtual instruments. Started out all virtual instruments. I use Logic and then lots of sound libraries. I did add a, an analog synth, the first one on Chromosphere, in a couple places, and including uh, on Artemis, there's a little section that to me sounds very like much like Vangelis. Yeah. And that was done on, uh, on the, uh, the analog synth, but most of it is, is virtual. You know, I have some keyboard, keyboard MIDI controllers that I use to trigger stuff, but 
my music for the most part isn't dependent upon traditional instrumentation, melodies and chords. There's some in there, but I don't have any rules. Basically, I'm not following any. I, I make whatever sounds good, regardless of whether it's with accepted musical theory or not. Yeah, actually, Don also had a follow up, which was, is your yes. music capable of being written down as sheet music? And would one performance of the song be the same as another if you were to do live performances? Uh, <laughs> That's a good question. To write it down, well, it's all MIDI. So yes, you can score the notes. You won't necessarily get the sound because you might have a lot of things that are arpeggiated. Right. So in the cases where you're, you might be holding down some different notes and you're getting some arpeggiation effects, those won't show up in the score. I've been asked by a number of people, you know, can you do this live? And I'm trying to figure out how I would do it. Because there are a lot, it would mostly have to be backing tracks. Yeah. Because sometimes there's 30 or 40 or 50 tracks in a song and I've only got two hands. <laughs> so I'd have to pick and choose what to play. And would I play exactly what's on the record or would I try to improvise? I don't know. I'd probably have to experiment with that and see. Because improvisation in this kind of stuff can, can work really well, or it can be, oh, that sounds awful, right? So I guess you have that risk with improvisation in any, in any case, but you have the, I think you have it more with this just based on how I construct things and how many things that I reject uh, <laughs> as being a terrible idea. So I don't know. I don't know how much interesting it would be to sit there and watch somebody play the backing tracks. Usually with this kind of performance, you have people with, uh, light shows and lasers and projections and all this stuff to make it a whole experience. And, you know, I don't really have the budget for that. <laughs> I feel you. An open question. <laughs> I'd love to do it live somehow if I could figure out how. I, I have a, a question about the creative process. Obviously, I I love using Logic and just going through the sound libraries that, that I've either built up myself and the, and the virtual right. instruments that are there. Um, yep. And, you know, you just sit there with your MIDI keyboard and you pre press a button or you hold a chord down and you just let the instrument do the work. Exactly. And you can, you can lose yourselves for hours just finding a sound and then exploring exploring yep. that. Within these virtual instruments, there is a lot of dials and buttons that you can mess around with and adapt the sounds. How much are you using presets or how much are you? is this you exploring sounds yourself as well? Mostly presets. Some of the analog synth that I've got, I might do a little more exploring. Well, I, I guess I've, I've fiddled with, yeah. with a number of them, but most of the time that just takes a lot of time uh, yeah. to, when there's so many presets out there that you can, you can select from, I re I really might mainly find presets that work together. And if I have a specific thing that I want to try to do that, I might mess with uh, the underlying controls and, and see if I can make that happen. You know, when I was, uh, taking electronic music, I really, the ARP 2600, which is some, an analog synth, but you can, it's got a lot of patch opportunities. So you can, you can wire it. You can override the native organization. I used to know that really, really well. Uh, and, and I could kind of make almost any sound that I wanted on the 2600. And I got the, uh, the virtual, the, uh, the Arturia version of it and 
realize it. I'd forgotten most of what I learned about <laughs> yeah. it. <laughs> how to customize it. And it, you know, back in that in those days, there were no presets. Yeah, right? absolutely. You, had to, yeah. you didn't have a choice. You had to make stuff yourself. Now there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. So yeah, I go that way. When you're when you're sitting at a piece, are you recalling presets? that you've used before as well, where you think, oh, that, you know, what would sound perfect here? Or is it really just ex- exploration as you're going through each piece on its own? Yeah, I try not to reuse the same presets. Uh, I have a couple of times, not intentionally, Yeah, but I'll be, I'll find something works. And then later on I go, oh, wait a minute. I use, that sounds exactly like what I did over in this track. You know, do I need to change it? I don't want to, I don't want to duplicate what I've done. But there's too many presets to remember to be able to remember what's what, right? Absolutely. And I keep getting new libraries and exploring those. There's not enough memory in my head to to remember what all the tracks sound like. So I'll just, unless there's something that's particularly standout-ish, I'll just stumble upon them again if the need arises. Awesome. So Wizzo has asked in a Space Fest interview a few years ago, you described Star Trek's Mr. Spock as a character who helped inspire you. Are you still a fan? And do you follow any current science fiction series? Uh, sure. Always, always a fan of Star Trek. Uh, Strange New World. So I'm, I'm really liking that one from Star Trek. But my go-to science fiction series, I guess, is Babylon 5. Uh, yes, uh, I'm looking for the new, uh, the new animated one to see. The Expanse, you know, was something I really enjoyed. Uh, had to actually watch it three times uh, because when I watched it the first time when it came out, there when there when you have too much time that goes by between seasons, then season starts up and I can't remember what happened the season before, so I better watch it again. And then they did another uh, season six. I think it was, I, I might as well just go watch it all again because I need to have the context for everything. I'm sure I'm leaving out uh, some that, uh, that I'm a fan of, but yes, always looking for good sci-fi. Yeah, I do. I do the same when I'm, uh, when a new series starts, I always feel like I have to watch the other one again. Uh, this ends up taking so much time. Anyway, yeah. Kevin Jennings has asked, if you could go to the moon, would you? And if yes, if you could only take one album with you for the journey, what would it be? <laughs> yes, I guess it would. I go. There's a lot of there's a lot of detail, a lot of assumptions you have to make in the, into that into that answer. So, under the right circumstances, yeah, I'd love to to do that. What album would I take with me? That reminds me of that Stephen Wright joke where he said he drove cross country in the US he only had one cassette tape and he said I can't remember what it was <laughs> uh, so be something by Marillion I think that's my band and I would have to it'd have to be something from them uh, I don't know how I could pick one but the uh, an hour before it starts that would be an appropriate one to take to them and I might take that I don't know be something from Marillion so the next question is by Toby Jeffries. So we all know about the Astronaut Wives Club and how close the families live to each other over the years. Is there kind of a astronaut children's club? <laughs> You're like, I hope not. <laughs> there have been attempts uh, to do that, uh, but there's never anybody steps up to organize it. If you're talking about the Astronaut Wives Club, the book... I, I never read the book. Uh, I did see part of the the mini series. I know I read 
a excerpt uh, from the book on a web page somewhere that talked about our family somewhat. And, you know, they, she just said stuff that just didn't make any sense to me. See, nobody really thought about themselves, didn't think anything special was going on. The kids, dad just had a job. Families were close for a couple of reasons in my experience. One was, did you live near one? Meaning, did the, did you go to the same school? Did they have kids that were, uh, you know, similar in age to you? Uh, and did you go to the same school? If that, if one of those was the case, then you tended to see them a fair amount. But nobody sat around going talking about what dads did. Yeah, it, it really didn't matter. I had friends who were uh, who I only found out much later. Dads had you know some important role in NASA. We had no idea. Then the other, uh, the other thing would be if you were on, if the, if they're on a crew together. So if right. they were on crew, primer backup crew, then a lot of times you might get together for the weekends and the families would hang out somewhere and then the guys would work. So you got to know people that way. If they were in a, like I lived in El Lago and so the Nassau Bay kids, they went to a different school. So I didn't really know those people unless one of these other reasons got us together. So El Lago and Timber Cove went to one school, so I tended to know those people better. And finally, uh, we noticed that you sometimes pop up on online forums when your dad is being discussed. Uh, most recently, when your childhood home in Houston appeared on a, a uh, Airbnb uh, so what motivates you to take part in these discussions and, and do you feel a responsibility in getting the truth out there? Yeah, I, 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 it's like a case by case basis. You know, there are some things where, you, you know, I, I see something depends on maybe what form it's in. You know, if it's in space hipsters, for example, much more likely to, to comment uh, on things there because like you feel familiar with enough of the people. Uh, yeah. Well, it's gotten to be such a big group that I guess I don't know that many of them anymore, but <laughs> it's a vetted group as far as I'm concerned. And so I don't mind. So it really just depends on, on the group. I don't know if it's a responsibility. I wouldn't take it that far, but if it's an opportunity to maybe provide some insight on something, then, and I feel like it, I'll do it. If it's likely to do, I mean, I sort of stay away from the, uh, you know, the moon landing deniers and so forth, because to me, that's just a no win situation. You, it's just a time sink, uh, of, <laughs> of stuff. And yeah. um, I was pretty active in, in the first man film because there was so much misinformation I felt that was written about that. And, uh, I, I did feel maybe a bit of an obligation to try to combat that realizing that, you know, that's not a battle you're ever going to win, but at least you're on the record. Yeah, and, and maybe it helps somebody come to a different conclusion about how they think about things based on underlying information. I, I don't argue against people's opinions. I just say, here's how it was. To the best of my knowledge, you take it from there. Absolutely. So are, are there any plans in the short term to be back out with Edison's children or anything like that, going back to your music? Uh, anything coming up that we should be keeping an eye out for? Or do we just look forward to album four from uh, of the new stuff? Yeah, it is the children, which is a, a band that I'm part of, along with a U.S. guy named Eric Blackwood and the bass player from Rillian, Peter Ravis, was really their side project that they started, and I've kind of 
kind of grown into it. Uh, yeah, we've got a uh, writing sessions coming up this nice. summer. We're going to get, we've got a bunch of material that's reasonably far along. And so we're going to spend some dedicated time trying to figure out if we can turn it into, uh, a, an actual album. So wish us luck on that. So we'll see. Absolutely. Well, good luck for that. And uh, thank you very much for joining us. And this has been really great. And uh, we'll encourage all of our listeners to go and check out the the, the latest album. Hopefully, a few you'll get a few extra people, a few extra ears on it as a result of talking to us. Uh, that, that would be great. I'm so, assuming you have all the links already, but yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. We really would appreciate that if you you post those out because uh, it's hard. There's so much music out there now. Absolutely coming at you that it's hard to find we weed your way through to, to find something you like so appreciate that no worries every single place in the observable universe is either space or a thing so this podcast is really about everything rick is really a wonderful guy i've met him through a few uh astronaut scholarship foundation events in the past he really is a stand-up guy and he's very uh supportive of the space community it's really fascinating to hear about his music as well. I'll, I'll admit I'm not a, uh, unlike Dave, I am not a musician <laughs> and I don't really have any musical background. I, I just like to listen to music, but I did listen to, uh, some of the tracks off of Chromosphere cause I was very, I was, you know, really interested and it's really awesome for me. It's really great backgrounders for like when I'm writing stories and stuff like that, because it's really great atmospheric music for when you want to get in like a certain mood to write stuff or to, to think about space. So I really, I really like it. I think a lot of people will as well. And I, I don't really define him by, you know, obviously his dad, who his dad is, you know, I mean, I, I think we look at people and we want to define them, especially the astronaut kids. We've interviewed a lot of them on the show and I think sometimes people want to define them by what their parents did or who their parents were and stuff. And But Rick is his own person and he does his own thing. You know, that was really fun to talk to him. I, I guess the difference here when we've spoken to other astronaut children is they tend to have been promoting a book about their parent or we've explicitly said we want to talk about your parent to to talk about a certain issue that may become up that that we know they're active about whereas we approached rick to talk about his music in this instance yes. because he's released this new album and it's really it's really interesting but also it has a space connection the fact that he has produced these videos um or allowed people to produce these videos because he's been inspired by the images of JWST or Artemis or on his previous albums, he's got other ones that have been had mute uh, videos with the moon images and things like that on them. And I like that he's, he's doing that, that he's embracing the space world. And w when you watch these videos, pick the, the, the latest one, Artemis one is really cool. Cause we've, we've seen those images, but having some atmospheric music around them, it's like these, he's soundtracked, these things that, that we've enjoyed watching over the last year after over the last two years. And, and I don't know, maybe I, to me, it's also just a little bit extra special that it's, it's Rick doing it. And although he's not defined by his dad for, but for sure, it, you can't get away from that at the same time. And, and, you know, he is the son of the first person to set foot on the moon. So when he creates a music, which is, lunar based especially when we're looking forward at artemis i find that a really good connection i like that connection of the 
the thing that's connecting the past and 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 the, and the future is Rick's music. I think that's really cool. That is really cool. It's a neat. It's a nice link between you know the past and the present and future. It, absolutely, I think that's a really cool linkage to make, and I think he's a good person to do it. And he's and it's very dignified, you know, how he's doing it as well. You know, I, I really like it. It's just really cool, and it was cool to talk to him and get a little background about, you know, some of the stuff that has been written about, you know, that community back then as well. There's sort of a mythology, and then there's what's really, you know, what they really went through. You know, obviously, I love astronauts, and I've I, I focused a lot on astronauts in the 60s, and I, I think that's really fascinating to talk about as well. You know, I think that's neat because their dads just had jobs. That's how they looked at it. They didn't view their dads as like these probably invincible American heroes like the rest of us did. You know, they looked at their dads like, yeah, they went to work. They brought a lunch pail. They drank coffee. Like they just were doing a job. It wasn't like you thought about it like, oh my God, this is the world's biggest badass. Well, I think most of the, the astronaut kids were very humble about what their parents did from what I've, what I've spoken to about them. So I know I'm responsible for it as well. In space hipsters, we tend to look at some of these people the larger than life. And it's kind of neat to look at it through the eyes of like people who really knew them. Like, yeah, they just went to work every day. I sort of like that perspective as well. It does humanize them. I think that it, when, we, when we talk about the children of, of people who walked on the moon in the 60s and 70s, and, and we didn't go down this route with Rick because that wasn't what the interview was about, but you can't imagine what it must be like to try and ha- live knowing that that's what your parent did. Once you've got to the position where you've, you can appreciate what they did, but how, how do you live up to that? It's just, it's a tough one, isn't it? And, and yet Rick has created his own path with music and the project he's done and he's found his own passion, his own love of progressive rock and the fact he's been able to, to, uh, explore that and end up working with some of the people that he really respects within that industry and hold his own says a lot about him and uh yeah i I think everyone should just go and check out um his solo albums but also check out the work he's doing with edison's children and it's it's really interesting if you like prog you're gonna love it i know prog isn't for everyone uh but uh, you know if you if you if you're that way inclined you're really gonna love what, what he's doing there so i will put links to Rick stuff in the show notes please go and check it out and, and let us know what you think and also let us know your favorite music which is inspired by space because I love these kind of discussions I always find new music uh, which gets harder to do when there's so much out there and uh, as you get older you're just a little bit more ingrained in what you like so listening to something new uh, and having your eyes opened with a mutual connection such as space uh, is a nice way to to find new music. So please do get in contact and check the show notes uh, for Rick's links. Also, the full unedited interview with Rick is available to watch on our Patreon page, which is patreon.com forward slash space and things. You're listening to the Space and Things podcast with Dave Carney and Emily Giles. I mean, Dave, Dave Giles and Emily Carney. So, Emily, what has caught your eye in spaceflight since last week? A couple things. One is actually pretty serious and one's actually not very serious. The thing that is uh, actually serious, and this just got in my inbox a little while ago, 
This is from a place called Special Aerospace Services. And Special Aerospace Services apparently has been awarded a, a Space Act agreement with NASA to develop a commercial autonomous maneuvering unit. A what now? An <laughs> autonomous maneuvering unit, an AMU, which is sort of like a jetpack. It's cool. kind of not the same, but it's very similar to what Bruce McCandless the second used on um, STS, I think it was 41B. So I'm reading directly from the press release here. This is not my own words. Yeah, awarded under the second collaborations for commercial spaceflight capabilities initiative. This system will allow for safer assembly of commercial low Earth orbit space station servicing retrieval and inspection of space systems. And according to the Special Aerospace Services Chief Technical Officer and co founder Tim Bulk. This agreement is critical in providing expertise, historical data, lessons learned, and access to NASA personnel in order for SAS to achieve, or I'm sorry, to accelerate our commercial development of the AMU technology. So that's really cool. I feel like, I feel like it's almost the 1980s again, except this time it's like a commercial version of a maneuvering unit. It's not NASA's version because the one that we know from the poster and from the book Wonders All Around was developed by NASA. I forgot the main, the contractor who worked on it, but Bruce McCandless, the astronaut himself, had a huge hand in that. But it was NASA's baby. It wasn't a commercial project. So this is kind of neat. We'll see sort of a commercial astronaut Buck Rogers jetpack, and I can't wait to see pictures of people using it if that actually comes to fruition. So that's some cool news this week. Another thing that's not so serious that I found is... Uh, this podcast comes out on a Thursday, so by the time this podcast is released, this is going to be old news already. But I still wanted to share it. It's an article from the Jerusalem Post, and it's asteroid the size of 100 hot dogs to pass Earth on Monday, <laughs> which is today, July 10th. And um, it says asteroid 2018 NW has a diameter of around 16 meters, which is around as much as 100 Hot dogs, but hold on to your buns because it isn't going to hit us, although it may fly close. This just shows how much people will just try to avoid the metric system at all costs. They could have said, you know, this is about the equivalent of so many tons or so many, you know, even pounds is not the metric system. But, you know, it's still, you know, OK, so many pounds. OK, that's nice. No, they had to go into 100 hot dogs. So that's very strange. So, yeah, that just uh, tells you how much people will avoid trying to use the metric system. And also there's diversity in hot dog sizes. So I'm a little confused <laughs> at how big this is. Does it include the bun? Yeah. Is it include the bun? Is it one of the plump hot dogs that plump up when you cook them? Is it one of the cocktail weenies? Is it one of the footlong hot dogs you can get at Disney World? So many variables. So that's what caught my eye in space this week. But uh, yeah, even though the the hot dogs won by Thursday will be old news because by that point, the asteroid will have safely uh, traversed our planet without hitting it. So what about you, Dave? What have you been looking at this week? Okay, well, this actually came up a couple of weeks ago and I forgot to mention it. Did you see that there's been an event at Buckingham Palace recently? where the king has unveiled the Astra Carta. I was not aware of this, no. Okay. What is the Astra Carta? I okay. know what the Magna Carta is, but not the Astra Carta. All right, so there was a thing apparently called the Terra Carta, which I, I was not aware of, and that was, oh, um, okay. that was something to do with uh, sustainability for nature, people, and planet. 
And apparently this is the next step of that into trying to get the space industry to think about sustainability. Oh, okay. So apparently it brings a reality for space sustainability outlined by His Majesty King Charles III in his previous role as Prince of Wales at the Space Sustainability Summit in 2022. I must have missed that. Um, Yeah. So we have a seal... So we have what looks like a mission patch, and this was unveiled, and it was designed by Sir Joni Ive. They've they've got this whole Astra Carta framework, which is um, apparently similar to the Sustainable Markets Initiative, and aims to convene the private sector in creating an ambition and momentum in advancing and accelerating sustainable technology and business models. It also recognises the unique role that space can play in creating sustainable Earth, and the need for space-related industries to consider environmental and sustainable impacts both on and beyond our planet. Its ambition encourages a focus on placing sustainability at the core of space activity. And I'm reading this from the press release, the Sustainable Markets press release. So at the event, you had Chris Hatfield, the former Canadian astronaut who's been in the UK on tour recently. And you had all of the current crop of UK astronauts, including Tim Peake. It's the first photo I've seen of, of all, all four of them together. Wow. Uh, which was which is quite cool. And also uh, Tory Bruno made his way across. Uh, oh, wow. Which is That's from cool. United Launch Alliance. So it looks like there was lots of people there from the space industry, private industry, and that, that people are signing up to this, this thing that's been led by the New King of England, trying to promote sustainability within within the space industry. And I think that's worthy. I think that's a worthy thing that he's done. So well done, King Charles III. Long live the king and all that. <laughs> Dave has to say this or else he'll, like, somebody will pop out from, like, <laughs> exactly. behind the door and just kill his ass. <laughs> just shoot him. So Absolutely. He has to you say this. He's talking about the king. Exactly. You have, to, you have to have eyes in the back of your head. He's looking around. He's like, oh, my God. He's like, God save the king, yeah. Oh my God. The slightly more skeptical side of me is like the, the Terra Carta and then Astra Carta. You know, the, as you said, you'd heard of the Magma Magna Carta or Magma. Yeah, Magma, <laughs> Magma Carta. Magma Carta. Yeah, the ma- the famous Magma Carta. The famous Magma Carta. We studied Carta. that in school yeah. for like ages. It's volcanic. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Harrison Smith was involved. Anyway. Yes, exactly. Um, <laughs> he discovered it on the moon. He discovered it, yeah. Yeah, it was uh, carved into an orange, uh, the orange soil yes. uh, he found on the moon. Exactly. Anyway, yep. I, I, I think that's a bit cheap. I think that the whole Astra Carta thing is a bit kind of, oh, come on, you could have done better than that. But but fine. I mean, the thought process behind it is great. It hasn't received much press attention here. They, they even rolled out space royalty like Brian May. So, oh wow! Uh, okay, yeah, he was there because um, he'll he'll turn up to the opening of a of a book. So um, it doesn't surprise me that he was there. <laughs> but yeah, it was. Uh, I, it's it's something that's interesting. I think I think it's good that someone is is showing some leadership, and it's good to see that people put people showed up. Maybe they just wanted to meet the new king. But uh, we'll be in- yeah, see, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, it, I, I don't know if I haven't seen anything from SpaceX to say whether anyone was there from them representing them. Um, that doesn't mean there wasn't. I just haven't seen yeah. it. And, and I tried searching for the guest list and I can't find it, but maybe someone can send yeah. it to us. I'm glad you brought it up because I, I, I hate to admit this, I had not heard of it. And like I said, I've heard of the Magma Carta. I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm going to get so much hate mail. Like, you dumbass, that's not what it's called. Like, yes, I know that's not what it's called. 
okay. We're just being silly. But um, no, seriously, I, I had not heard of it. So that's actually kind of that's actually kind of cool. But I'm wondering how binding it is. I mean, obviously, this isn't a law, and and he's, okay. he's obviously trying to get various companies from a variety of countries involved in this. So yeah. uh, for, again, from the press release, it says it aims to serve as a roadmap for the okay, global yeah. private sector. It's not a law. Align. It's not. It's definitely not a law, but it, it's. Yeah. Well, I suppose Carter cart means map, doesn't it? I guess. Yeah, it does. It's a neat idea, and I like. I like that he's supporting that, you know, the idea of sustainability in spaceflight, because I think that's something we're we're, we're just going to have to think about in the future. This is certainly interesting. This is a, I, I like what he's doing here because it's not a law. He's not trying to create a law. He's trying to just use his influence to, yeah. to get a conversation started and also to to highlight an I- potential issue. Well, I've just sent you the 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 link in in our little yeah. chat here. Uh, cool. Just have a look at the the logo. It's quite a cool mission patch. They've not called it a mission patch. They've called it a seal. Oh, it's cool. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right, you, you'd want that as a patch, wouldn't you? It, it's really pretty. It's sort of got like a like an embossment. It looks like it's yeah. It looks like if it was on a pat a patch or a sticker, it'd be kind of raised up and gold. Or a coin. It's really. Yeah, or a coin. It's really pretty. I like it. And I like the sort of celestial background. It's really nice. Yeah, I think that's really cool. And I, I think it's cool that he's trying to influence that uh, as we go further into the high frontier. It wouldn't be show 150 <laughs> without Gerard K. O'Neill reference. Without his, him just randomly <laughs> showing up out of nowhere. Yeah, like, hey, we got to build space settlements. But seriously, as we go further into the soul, uh, uh, further into space, we need to take the things that we worry about on Earth, you know, sort of to space as well, I think. These are issues that I think we really do need to think about. So that's really cool that he did that. Yeah, I mean, also when we're in space, how how are we going to uh, pick how we're measuring the size of astro- asteroids? I think that's another thing that, that we need to take forward with us. You know, yes. we need to, to standardize our hot hot dog measurements so that as we go forward into the high frontier, we know how we're going to uh, yeah. determine how much of a threat an asteroid is to our spacecraft or our habitat. To my knowledge, Gerard K. O'Neill never discussed the hot dog measurement system <laughs> anywhere. I don't know. I'll look in his archives, but I don't think this was something oh, he... He thought about, you know, and maybe he should have thought about it back then. He was such a visionary. I'm shocked. Like he probably was sitting at a table one day just eating a hot dog like, man, how can I make this a measurement system? I know. And then, you know, and then he got sidetracked by like, you know, something else like he had to do an equation or something. All right. So what I would do is I'll put links, as always, uh, to these articles that Emily and I have been inspired by this week within our show notes, which can be found on spaceandthingspodcast.com. Hello, everybody. This is Fat Bobby Lousma, and I'm here to say thank you for listening. Okay, that's it from show 150. Emily and I, before we came on and recorded this week's episode, uh, we were sent a video made by some of our listeners. I think the ringleaders were Don Irwin and Carla Gust, and it made us quite emotional. Thank you to anyone who participated in that video or anyone who has sent us well wishes for the fact we've reached 150 shows. Uh, I'll be honest, I, I needed to hear that. It's it's. Uh, it's getting to that point now where I'm like, uh, should should we should we are right to keep going, right? This this is the right thing to do. 
it's getting it seems like it's getting harder to find the time to do the research to find things to find guests oddly enough we're getting turned down more than we used to and i don't know what what that's all about maybe people are less are a bit busier now the world has, has gone back to normal but it, it seems like it's getting harder uh but yeah that seeing that video certainly has made me go yeah we're on the right track we're doing something that that is appreciated and so thank you to all those who are part of that video and thanks again to anyone who's listening if you, you may not have known that was going on and would have happily contributed but uh, yeah just thanks for listening and thanks to anyone who's on our patreon and uh, buying merchandise and things like that it it is wonderful so thank you yeah thank you so much to all of you uh really uh we were both very touched by that that video uh, words can't really express how it made me feel Seeing that video made me know we've we've brought a lot of happiness to people's lives and we've been doing the right thing and we've been asking the right questions and that makes me feel really good. So and I and I know I can't speak for Dave, but I know it makes him feel really good too. So thank you so much to all of you. Uh whether you've listened to one or all 150 of our episodes, hopefully we can keep this going for another 150 episodes. Uh and there's certainly enough to be talking about to do that. So we'll be back next week, but don't forget, in space, no one can hear you me. This has been the Space and Things Podcast with new episodes every Thursday.